Last week, we kicked off a new teaching series called Love Never Fails, and we started by uh, talking about the fact that we all find ourselves in various types and uh, forms of what I called echo chambers. Maybe you've heard this term before, uh, silos and, and these things where we get into this feedback loop where we like what this group says, we like that they you know, like confirm for us what we believe, and we don't want to go outside of that. And, and, and oftentimes in our culture, to go outside of that means to deal with the enemy. Somebody who thinks differently than me, I don't want to do that. They're the bad guy. We actually need to get rid of them. Um, and we've seen the results of this, uh, by and large, I think, over the last few years in, in our culture. And, and, and what I was saying and, and trying to help us understand is that I think the appeal about echo chambers, and we're all in them in various ways, is that they, they try to offer us life, a good life, try to define truth, tell us what to build our lives on. And we feel good, we feel secure when we feel like, yes, these people are reaffirming what I think is truth, therefore my life is secure. And they try to give us this way to live that's going to lead to like full life. All right, so whether that's, um, you know, a tribal thing of some sort, an ethnic thing, a, uh, you know, a rights or a liberties echo chamber, you know, I feel this way about you know, gender and sexuality, and so I like that this group affirms that for me, or I feel this way about my rights, you know, uh, gun rights, right? And so I like that this group affirms this for me, or, or the opposite side of I have a right to the gun that we shouldn't have. I like how this group affirms that for me, and, and we stay in these things because we feel like they have truth, and they have life, and they, and they offer us a way to live, or an economic thinking, you know, echo chamber, or the granddaddy of them all, politics, and that's what we're going to talk about today, politics, the political echo chambers that we all find ourselves in that offer us life and truth and, and a way to live. And, and what I tried to talk about last week is that what we find is that they're trying to give us an identity. They're trying to play the role of God in our lives, and, and we unwittingly buy into this. And what Jesus comes to tell us is that, no, 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 I've come to give you life to the full. I am truth, and I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And, and, and what I think most of us grasp, like if you're in this room, or you're watching online, or you're listening to this later, what we probably all, most of us would agree on is that Jesus is the way, as in like the, the road, the path to the Father, to salvation, which is what he says. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's like you have to go through Jesus to get to the Father, to have a relationship with God, to have salvation. So it's like he's the road, and I think we would all say, sure. But what we miss is that he goes on after that to define what the way looks like, what the way of God, what the way of Jesus looks like. And he defines it as, as obeying his commands, not to earn anything, he's already granted it to us, but to obey his commands, and most of his commands revolve around love. He boils all the commands down to love God, love neighbor. Love God, love others. So he's saying, follow me on the way to the Father, and the way to the Father is through this way of love. It's the way out of echo chambers to the people around us who we might think are different, we might think don't agree with us, we might think are the enemy, as so many of us experience and feel in our lives. So we're talking about in this series about how love never fails, that the way of Jesus is the way of love, and we need to walk out of the echo chambers, out of these silos towards people in love. And today what we're going to talk about is, 
is how does the church, our church, the church at large, Christians, Jesus followers, how do we live that out in the midst of our current state of politics? The echo chambers of politics that we all find ourselves inundated with, whether we just want to hop on Instagram for a couple minutes, whether we're going on Facebook to look at like our mom's pictures somewhere, like, you know, it's a vacation somebody went on, whether we just turn on the television, like we're just inundated with politics, politics, and, and this demonization of the other side. So we need to start with this. What does it look like to love in the midst of political echo chambers that we find ourselves being drawn to or even in already? What is, what is the mission of the church? Like, let's, let's just start with a foundation. What is the mission of the church? What did Jesus say that if we are going to be Jesus, followers will say that he's the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. If we're going to say that, we're going to say that we believe that, what did he call us to? What did he, what did he tell us that we're to be doing with our efforts, with our lives, with our time? First and foremost, the mission of the church is to make disciples of one another, right? We gospel one another, and we call people to follow Jesus, and, and we evangelize, right? That's where the term evangelical comes from, is that we want to see the world come to know Jesus as well. So we go and make disciples. So Jesus clarifies this as he's getting ready to leave the earth and go back to the Father in Acts 1 or in Matthew 28. He says similar things. He says, I'm calling you to make disciples, so Matthew 28, right? Famous passage. It's called the Great Commission. These are sort of Jesus's, as Matthew uh, puts it together in his gospel, these are Jesus's last words, the last words of his gospel to the disciples. He says, Jesus came near to them. All right, so he's already died. He's risen uh, from the grave. He's getting ready to ascend to the Father. He says, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Where? Everywhere. Go, therefore, or as you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, giving them a new name, right? Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' last instructions, Acts 1, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. You're going to go and bear witness about me. You're going to go and tell people about me, making other followers of Jesus, not forcing, but talking to, leading to, helping people understand who Jesus is so that they, they can get on the way of truth and life with him as well. And so what's important to notice here is what he's calling them to make disciples of, who he's calling them to make disciples of, followers of, himself. And you think, okay, yeah, right. But also what he's not calling them to. He's not calling them to make disciples of a church, saying there's only one right church. There's only one right denomination. So when we go out and we try to tell people about Jesus, we're not trying to just tell people about our church. I love our church. I think it's great. I think we do a pretty good job. But there's other churches. One of my bosses at one point said it takes all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. Fine. Because there's one Jesus. And he's saying, make disciples of me, not just a church. But beyond that, he says, Make disciples of me, not of a religious system, not of a legalistic do's and don'ts kind of thing. He says, make disciples of me, people who follow me, people who are going to follow me in the way I have commanded you to live, people of the scriptures, people of the spirit, people who are listening to the voice of the shepherd to follow him out, not just a list of rights and wrongs. And finally, for today's point, he calls them to make disciples of him, not of a political party, not of a person, 
not of a, a platform, not of a policy, disciples of Jesus. Jesus is the authority that we give allegiance to. I will never stand up here and Adam will never stand in Bethlehem and tell you who you should vote for. Because we're called to allegiance to Jesus. First and foremost, and over all, every, like everything else. Because he has authority where? Heaven, earth, everywhere. This is where Jesus has authority. So our allegiance is to simply Jesus. Yes, we are called to engage in civil things. Absolutely. The fact that we have the ability to take part in our government is amazing, and we should. But we need to remember, as citizens of heaven, first and foremost, we are citizens of heaven, then citizens of the United States. It's a privilege that we get to vote. It's a privilege. that, Like, I, like I would love it if somebody here was like, man, I feel really called to, to take part in, in like local government in this way. Great. Praise God. Go have allegiance to Jesus in that realm to the best of your ability and in your conscience. Great. Praise God. But our allegiance is as citizens of heaven. It's to Jesus first. So as Hope Alliance, we will never preach a political platform, a policy, a party that we need to go and vote for because it detracts from allegiance to Jesus. It pulls away glory from him and puts it on other people. It says the rescue is not in him, it's in these other things. And really... If that's the mission of the church to go and make disciples and to tell people about Jesus and to, and to call people into following him, I would argue that in the last 60 years, in America in particular I'm talking, we have messed this up. And I say we because we're one church. We're all in it together. This has been the great mess up over the last 50, 60 years, is believing this lie that making disciples is actually some kind of holy war between good and evil people. And often we find ourselves on the good side and the evil people are out there and we need to vote against them. We need to change them somehow. And we made making disciples and, and bringing and ushering in the, the fullness of the kingdom of Jesus somehow this holy war between like real people. Andy Stanley says in this book that I'm reading right now that we've, we care more about a view than about a you. Like, we care more about, like, what, like this, this, we need to fix people's view rather than actually caring about them as living, breathing souls, as people of God. And so the church has, has conflated this thing of discipleship with somehow this, this holy war between actual good and bad people out there that we need to fix. And, we, and we've come to believe that somehow it's about correcting people's platforms and policies, that if we would just fix those, then the kingdom of God could come. It's just not true. It's not what Scripture teaches at all. Or, to me, this is the underlying problem. We've, we've made making disciples into someone else's responsibility. We've come to believe, particularly in evangelical church and in progressive churches in this country, we've come to believe that bringing the kingdom is, is left up to politicians and our vote. If we just voted the right way, then the kingdom of God could come. And we need to convert people into being better Republicans. We need to convert people into being good Democrats who vote certain ways. We, need, we don't need conservatives, we need progressives or vice versa, whatever it is. And we've tried to outsource this, this idea of living out the kingdom and inviting people further into it. We've tried to outsource it to politicians and put way too much faith and hope in the political system. Come to believe that 
that influence and power in a political way are needed to somehow live out the kingdom of God. It's a lie. It's just not true, and it's not what Jesus preached. The truth is, making disciples is not a battle against flesh and blood, Paul says. Our battle is not against one another. There's a spiritual battle that is definitely happening. That there is a good king, Jesus, who is battling an evil king of the devil himself, the world and the flesh, warring against the kingdom of Jesus. But that's not people. It's a spiritual battle that's happening behind the scenes that we are to pray into and be aware of. But making disciples is, is this spiritual thing that's going on in the background that we pray for and we are aware of, but it's not making, like, it's not demonizing people saying they're the problem. Sin is the problem. The truth about making disciples is that instead of trying to bring the kingdom through our voting, through our platforms, through our policies, through our politicians, instead of trying to bring the kingdom in that way, the truth is the kingdom is already here. Jesus is on the throne in this moment in an unshakable way. The kingdom is, has been, will be always established. Already and not yet, right? Like it's, it's growing. And someday we will see it in its fullness when Jesus returns and deals in finality with that spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. The kingdom is already here, and what Jesus says is that it's in our hearts. It's in our midst. This is why the kingdom can exist in the midst of a communist nation. This is why the kingdom can exist in the midst of imperial Rome. This is why the kingdom can exist when there's a Democrat in office and in the White House, or when a Republican is in the office. Or I would say, despite them, the kingdom is already here, Jesus says. Look with me at Luke 17. Jesus is uh, being asked by these Pharisees about when the kingdom of God would come. Because they were waiting. They were trying so hard to bring back the king. They just thought, man, if we could get the right person in power in Rome, if we could get the right person in power in Jerusalem, then the kingdom would come. They were right, but they missed it. They didn't realize it was Jesus. So being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. So listen, they're asking, the Pharisees are asking, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And he says this, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. Just pause right there. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. Just let that sink in. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. Verse 21, no one will say, see here or or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Other translations say the kingdom of God is within you. Ooh. Some translators don't like the mysticism of that. So they're like, "Uh, we'll just say in your midst. The kingdom of God is within you. Meaning, someone could look at you and not necessarily see the kingdom outside of your behavior, I mean. See, the kingdom is in our hearts. The kingdom is already here. The kingdom is in our midst. And the method, the method of living out this invisible kingdom, this this kingdom of hearts, the The way that we are called to live this out is not necessarily through voting and policies and flat 
platforms and lining up with one politician or another. The way, the method that we live this out is love, is sacrificial love, which actually has great power but little influence in the world of politics. Sacrificial love is exactly that, dying to self. Didn't it look like Jesus lost? It's a sacrificial love, not a grasping for power and political office. The church, over the last 60 years, in fighting culture wars and the bumper sticker battles and like all this garbage that we've seen on social media turning into to real vitriol and, and hate and then turning into violence, we've messed it up. We should be grieved and embarrassed by this. We've gotten the method all wrong. About a month ago, I asked my kids to help me mow the lawn. And they were great. They were like, yeah, we'll go do it. And uh, two of them helped. One had a riding mower, one had a push mower. I'm not naming names. Afterwards, I can tell you that the lawn was mowed, the method was poor. They had helped, but the method was poor. Went back and somehow missed every row that was like, like somehow, it was like a wheel width of grass. It was like little mohawks of grass down through the lawn. Whatever, like we went back and just redid it real quick. Wanted to help, willing to help, got the method wrong. Didn't quite know what they were doing. Messed it up, right? Small consequences, no big deal. I would say the consequences of what the church is messing up is huge in this country. We're missing out on what it means to be Jesus followers. And people are flocking away from Jesus. The next generation is saying, Forget this. I'm out. If this is what it looks like, we have messed up the method. So the result of this, right, ends up being this massive division within the church where you have some churches who are like, we're progressive and we're for these things. And these people are the enemy over here on the conservative side of things. And the conservatives are like, they're the problem with the country. They're the evil ones. They're the devil. We got to vote them out, right? And it's like, what the heck is that about? Jesus didn't talk anything about that. We people writing off Christians now. Not now, good grief. Years now. Saying, if this is what it looks like, I don't want anything to do with that. I hear what you're preaching, but I don't know if you even believe it. Why would we believe you, Christian, about this King Jesus when you hate each other? I've seen what you post on social media. How in the world could I believe that you love and follow a God of love when you talk like that? Or what I think a lot of what's going on is is people are finally figuring out, we see through you, Jesus followers, that really this is about your power, about your influence, about your rights. You're just like everybody else. See, the kingdom should be observable in our behavior, most notably in our love, the way we carry ourselves. And it should grieve us to participate in the political echo chambers and the hatred that's there. It should grieve us when we see one another fighting. It should grieve us to see the the nastiness on social media. And can I just say that words matter? Words are influencing our culture I read an article this morning by David French 
don't know how you feel about him. He's, the title of the email, the title of the article was, There's No, There's no Right Person to Hate. <laughs> and he talked about how there was an assassination, a, 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 an attempt, a, a desired attempt to assassinate uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Where we see the capital violence on January 6th. Words matter. They create a culture. And we're living in this culture of hate that's now producing actual violence. <laughs> and sadly, Christians have been a part of it for too long. Because we want the right political party in office. And the rest of the world is looking on saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And we're like, yeah, but come to church with me. They're like, uh, no thank you. It should grieve us. And what Jesus tells us in the Gospels, he says, in this world, look, you're going to have trouble. Promises that. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have given you a political party that will save you. No, 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 he didn't say that. Right? He promises there's going to be trouble. We're trying so hard to get rid of the trouble through political actions. Just, you know, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have given you Donald Trump. I've given you Joe Biden. We fall for it. We fall for it. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've given you a good policy on guns. I've given you a good policy on gender rights. I've given you a good policy on abortion. Like, name it. And we put all of our eggs in those baskets. We put all of our hope in those things. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I'm giving you my peace. I'm giving you my trust in the Father. That you can trust in, in his providence. In his overseeing all of this. In Luke, he says, look, God has conferred on me a kingdom, and now I confer on you a kingdom. The kingdom's already here. He's given it to us. We should, like, breathe easy. Like, good, because this one is going to pot. Instead, we freak out, blame one another, demonize others. This is what the political world wants to do. Like, this just keeps coming to mind. If you only watch a certain type of media... I'll name names. If you only ever read and watch CNN, it's going to slant you in a certain way to where you demonize a large portion of this country. If you only ever watch Fox News and read conservative articles in that way, it's going to demonize people who are in this church. I know in the last election, two elections ago, there was someone who actively campaigned for Hillary Clinton. Oh, no. And people who were adamant that Donald Trump needed to be the president. In the same room, worshiping the same Jesus. But at night, if you went home and just watched the news in their house, they probably didn't even realize that they hated each other. You see what I'm saying? We put all our hope in that. And Jesus is like, I didn't leave you that kind of kingdom. I left you my peace. I left you my love. I left you my trust in the providence of God in the sovereignty of our Father. And he says, I've given you a method for living it out. 
for living it out, what it means to be a Jesus follower, for what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus. How we are called to, like the kingdom's already here, we're called to expand it through making other disciples, to expand the rule and reign of Jesus in hearts. And we do it through love. That's his command. Love. Love one another. The method of the church is sacrificial love. When Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, he's getting ready to go and die at the hands of imperial, like the empire of Rome, one of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen. He knows that this is coming. Judas goes out and betrays him, and he knows that the end is near. And John's saying, full of power, knowing that God had given him all power, He strips naked, puts a towel around his waist, and washes the disciples' feet. That should say something to us, that the man did not panic in that moment. He served, and he loved. It says he loved them to the last, and he washes their feet. And then he says this, I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. How did he love them? Think about all he had done for those three years with them. Called Matthew out of a terrible life. Called Peter out of a terrible life. Called in zealots. (laughs) Called in Roman sympathizers. Gave them new purpose, new lives, And the culmination of it washes their feet. He says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then what happens? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's saying, I am calling you to love one another sacrificially. The way I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then an onlooking world will see it. And you know what they will see? Me. They will see the unity that you have and say, where is that coming from? And you get to say, God. There's a whole other kingdom at work. And friends, the church has failed at this over the last 60 years. It's embarrassing. If you can't tell, I'm a little bit amped about it. It's not right. It's grievous behavior. I don't just argue, it's not the full life. It just stinks, always being angry, always hating, always worried, always suspect of the, suspicious of the people around us. Just a sucky way to live. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. Like, what? It's not the full life. There are 30 plus commands in the New Testament. I mean, more if you really want to stretch it out. There's, the, there's all these commands to go and love one another so that people can observe it. This was Paul's, like this is what Paul tells the churches to do. I said this last week. There's never really an explicit call from the Apostle Paul to go and evangelize in the way that we think. He tells them over and over and over again, love one another. Love one another. Have unity at all costs. Like strive for it so that the world can see that. So the world can see who the Lord really is so that people can observe it. This loving unity that the church can have through the power of Jesus and the motivation of the Spirit proves the lordship of Jesus, proves that he is in charge and no one else, proves that we are unafraid to be humble and sacrifice and serve one another, proves the love of Jesus. And then what happens is when we love people like that, 
When we love one another like that, when we love our neighbors like that, it actually provides an avenue into the heart where real change takes place. We try so hard to legislate righteousness in this country. And we'd rather do it through Facebook posts. I think we can just go pull a lever, well, push a button in a voting booth. When Jesus is like, the kingdom is in hearts. My lordship is in hearts. Love people, earn the right to speak about Jesus into the hearts of people where the spiritual battle is taking place. Now listen, brief aside, legislation's good, okay? I think there needs to be rules and regulations in the world. Sometimes Democrats put them forward and they're good. Sometimes Republicans put them forward and they're good. All right? Like, go take part in our civil society, 100%. Vote your conscience. Listen to the Spirit. Go and do your best. Fine. Absolutely. Christians have been at the forefront of great advances throughout the history of this world because they cared to get involved in civil proceedings. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, where does heart change really take? I mean, where does change really take place? It's in the heart. And this is why even when you don't have the right to vote in a place like, you know, a communist country or a dictatorship or the empire of Rome, the kingdom of God can still exist and advance because it's all in hearts. And what happens is when you believe Jesus in your heart and it changes you, guess what it starts to change? The culture changes a family, changes a community, changes a worldview. And then what you see happen in Rome in Jesus's day is that infanticide starts to go away. Women are raised up to equal value. Slavery starts to go away. Why? Because the hearts of people in the Roman Empire started to be changed. And we can do that again, I believe. And isn't that what Jesus did? He comes to this earth and he loves us sacrificially. He didn't pick politics or religion to win the day and have influence and power. He picked sacrificial love. That's when he's most glorified. That's when his power comes home and we really see it is on the cross. We're going to talk about next week, like what the embodied love of Jesus looks like to us and what it looks like for us to live it out. And can I say this? This is just something that it just sticks out to me so much. Jesus was ambivalent at best towards the government, towards politics. There's not, much, there's not many times that he gets asked about it. But there's one time where good religious people come to him and they're like, do you pay taxes to Rome? They're trying to trick him into being like, whose side are you on? Do you remember what he says? Classic Jesus, third way. That's what Jesus always does, third option. They're like, Rome or temple? He's like, whatever, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. I don't know. You understand what Jesus is saying? Think about the implications of this. He's saying, yes, I will pay taxes to Rome, who will then pay a soldier's pension, who will beat me bloody and hang me on a cross. He's saying, yeah, sure, whatever. Think about that. And we're like bent out of shape that we might put like an androgynous term on a bathroom door. Jesus says, yeah, I can give taxes to that government. That's fine, whatever. Because there's another kingdom that he's concerned about. A whole nother thing going on. A whole deeper level that he's calling us to. And when he goes and does that, it changes the world. Because he wanted to sacrificially love in the midst of 
a crazy Roman Empire. Changes a culture, changes worldviews. I'm reading this book. I'm not to the end of it, so I don't know that I can fully endorse it, but up through uh, page 150-something, I can support it. Andy Stanley, huge church pastor down in uh, North Carolina. No, Georgia. Georgia? Yeah, Georgia. I've been there. North Point in Atlanta. Decided to shut down his church during the pandemic and just took a beating for it. That's the introduction to this. In talking about changing cultures and changing worldviews by our love, he says this, Once upon a time, the love one another culture of the church stood in sharp contrast to the bite and devour one another culture of the pagan world. In a society that valued conquest and the consolidation of power above all things, the teaching of Jesus was judged as weak, feminine, and pathetic. By every ancient standard, the God worshipped by Christians lost. He was defeated. He was executed by his enemies. Worse, he surrendered himself to be executed. The odds of this knockoff Judean sect gaining traction was, well, it wasn't going to happen. But it did. What struck the ancient world initially as pathetic and appalling eventually came to be seen as inviting and appealing. In the end, it was contagious so contagious that it infected the empire dedicated to its demise. Against all odds, a cult dedicated to a crucified teacher with no territory, military, or recognized authority survived, multiplied, and eventually replaced the prevailing, not religion, Christianity replaced the prevailing worldview. When the Jesus movement was fueled and informed by his new covenant command to love one another, it was neither pathetic nor weak. It was unprecedented. It was unstoppable. It was notable and noticeable. It was, well, it was pretty much everything we collectively have ceased to be. It was what we must become once again. Doing so will not require political alignment or a new political movement. It will require something far more demanding. It will require us to step back onto the original foundation of our faith. It will require us to embrace the new covenant ethic Jesus introduced and illustrated. It will require us to love one another. Not just in our hearts. It will require us to love one another on both sides of the political aisle, with words and with our deeds, with our social media posts, our responses, our resources, and our sermons. It will require us to stop sizing people up and writing them off because of their political views. To do anything less is to declare through our actions that we are greater than our master who called us to love and serve. We've protested and boycotted. We've posted and tweeted. We've called people out. We've called people names. We've stereotyped, shamed, blamed. We've taken sides. Taken sides. We've politicized our churches. What if we took a break from all that and tried this? A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the way forward. It's not complicated. It's costly, but it's not complicated. That's how it's done. That's how it was done. Let's do that again. Not in it to win it. 
highly suggest up through 100 page, page 150. <laughs> Friends, can you imagine if we actually lived like we were part of a different kingdom? Believing that there was a third way, not a left, right, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, binary, but that there is a third way, and it's called the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus, when he is faced with Pilate before his execution, tells him, Pilate's questioning him, saying, oh, you're a king? He says, yeah, I'm a king. And Pilate's like, I don't see it. And Jesus says, I have a whole different kind of kingdom. My kingdom is just like from a different world. You can't even understand it. I speak the truth and my servants follow me. If, if my kingdom for, was of this world, you know what my disciples would do? They would fight right now. Friends, that's what we're doing. We fight like the world. And Jesus is saying, not in my kingdom. We live totally different because they're believing a different truth. And Pilate says, great line, what is truth? And, and John doesn't answer that question for us except to show us Jesus on the cross. That's truth. Sacrificial love that Jesus offers for us, bringing us an altogether different kingdom. Can you imagine if we actually lived that, if we actually believed that, it would change the world, it would change culture, it would change worldviews. We wouldn't need to legislate and try so hard to legislate righteousness because people start to live it. Imagine if we actually believed that Jesus is on the throne and we don't need to fret and freak out and think that everything rides on the next election. It doesn't. The kingdom is solid no matter what. The United States is going to come and go. Jesus might not come back for another 10,000 years. You think the country's still going to be here? Who gives a crap? Seriously. But the kingdom will be here, and the people live forever. Are we loving them well? Are we worried about who's in office? With the kingdom, can we, like, can we actually believe that we can live with a kingdom in our hearts? And what does Paul say the kingdom consists of in the Holy Spirit? Righteousness, peace, Joy, gentleness, kindness, self-control, love. That's what the kingdom is. Yes, voter conscience. Yes, vote your conscience. Go take part, but then trust God. Trust God enough to love the people around you, despite where they land on the policies and the politics. Trust his providence over the politics. We can join Peter in doing what he said in the midst of persecution. Fear God, honor the emperor, love one another. It's that simple. So that an onlooking world can see our behavior, the, the kingdom observable in that way, and say, I want to be part of that. I'm tired of the hate. I'm tired of the fear. I want whatever that group of people has. Look at the way they love one another. They even vote differently, and they love one another. They feel differently about X, Y, and Z, but they love one another and they share meals together and they worship somebody together. I want in on that. Friends, that's what changes the world. This just keeps coming to mind. Parents, if you're concerned about your kids, love Jesus in that way. Show them what it looks like to actually love Jesus and love the people around you. And they're going to say, yeah, okay, I actually do want that because what I'm seeing on social media, it's not that. I want something different. Trust God. Love people more than politics. Love people more than platforms and politicians and policies. Because love never fails. Love never fails.
Let's pray.